Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this podcast tells the story of the Crusades. Why tell this story when it's already been told so many times? Well, this podcast tells it from a different angle, which is that of the Byzantine Empire. My book called The Byzantine World War, which is available on Amazon, tells how the First Crusade came about really because of the great Byzantine defeat by the Seljuk Turks at the Battle of Manzikert in 1071. Where we are now is in the 1140s, and the four crusader states, the Principality of Antioch and the County of Edessa in the north, the County of Tripoli in the middle, and the main one, the Kingdom of Jerusalem in the south, have actually done quite well against an Islamic opposition which was, on paper at least, much stronger. Why is this? Well, I think it's really because Islam is highly fragmented at this time, and there are lots of different Arab emirates like those of Aleppo, Damascus and Mosul, which spend as much time fighting each other as they do the Crusaders. The Turks in Anatolia are also very divided, and although the Egyptians in the Fatimid Caliphate are more united, their armies weren't very effective. But what we're going to hear about now is how one Islamic leader, who was actually Turkish had succeeded in uniting the emirates of Mosul and Aleppo and was now about to inflict a major defeat on the Crusaders. His name was Imad al-Din Zengi, or Zengi for short. As before, I'll read extracts from my abridged version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful History of the Crusades, which although written many years ago, is still regarded as the all-time classic narrative text on the Crusades. Runciman was also a very famous Byzantine historian, so his approach is very similar to my own in looking at the Crusaders through Byzantine eyes. So, let's go. Hope you enjoy it. By about the year 1140, King Fulk of Jerusalem had reason to be satisfied with his government. He had learnt the lesson that for the Franks to survive, they must be less intransigent towards the Muslims and even be ready to make friends with the less dangerous of them, and he had carried his nobles with him in this policy. At the same time, he'd worked hard for the country's defences. On the southern frontier, three great castles had been built to guard against raids from the Egyptians at Ascalon. At Ibelin, some ten miles southwest of Lydda, at a well-watered spot that commanded the junction of the roads from Ascalon to Jaffa and then to Ramla, he used the ruins of the old Roman town of Jamnia to erect a splendid fortress, was entrusted to Balian, surnamed the Old, brother of the Viscount of Chartres. Balian had owned the land under the Lords of Jaffa, and had won Fulk's favour by supporting the king against Hugh of Le Puise. As Chatelain of Ibelin, he was raised to the rank of a tenant-in-chief, and he married Helvis, heiress of Ramla. His descendants were to form the best-known noble family in the Frankish East. South of Ibelin, the direct road from Ascalon to Jerusalem was guarded by the castle of Blanchegarde, on the hill called by the Arabs Tel as Safia, the Shining Mound. Its custodian, Arnulf, 
became one of the richest and most powerful barons of the realm. The third castle was built at Beth Giblin, at the village that the Crusaders wrongly identified with Beersheba. It commanded the road from Ascalon to Hebron, and its maintenance was entrusted to the Hospitallers. These fortifications were not complete enough to prevent all raids from Ascalon. In 1141, the Egyptians broke through and defeated a small crusader force on the plain of Sharon. But most of the time, the crusaders could hold up any serious attack from Egypt. The internal security of the realm also improved during Fulk's reign, At the time of his accession, the road between Jaffa and Jerusalem was still unsafe because of the bandits who not only molested pilgrims, but also interrupted the food supply to the capital. In 1133, while the king was absent in the north, the patriarch William organised a campaign against the bandits and constructed a castle called Chastel Ernaud, near Bet Nuba, where the road from Lida climbs into the hills. Its erection made it easier for the authorities to police the road, and after the fortification of the Egyptian frontier, travellers seldom met with trouble on their journey from the coast. Of the government of the kingdom during Fulk's last years, we hear little. Once Hugh of Le Puise's revolt had been crushed, and the Queen's desire for vengeance had been allayed, the barons supported the crown with perfect loyalty. With the Church of Jerusalem, Fulk's relations were consistently good. The patriarch William of Messine, who had crowned him and who was to survive him, remained a faithful and deferential friend. As she grew older, Fulk's wife, Queen Melisande, took to pious works, though her chief foundation was intended for the greater glory of her family. She was devoted to her sisters, Alice, who became Princess of Antioch, Hodierna, who was now Countess of Tripoli, but for the youngest, Javetta, who had spent a year of her childhood as a hostage with the Muslims, there was no suitable husband to be found. She had entered religion and become a nun at the convent of St Anne in Jerusalem. The Queen in 1143 bought from the Holy Sepulchre in exchange for estates near Hebron the village of Bethany, and there she built a convent in honour of St Lazarus and his sisters Martha and Mary endowing it with Jericho and all its orchards and surrounding farms and fortifying it with a tower. Lest her motive should be too clearly apparent, she appointed as its first abbess an excellent but elderly moribund nun who conveniently died a few months later. The convent then dutifully elected the 24-year-old Juvetta as abbess. Juvetta, in her dual role as princess of the blood royal and abbess of Palestine's richest convent, occupied a distinguished and venerable position for the rest of her long life. But matters were to become much more serious in the autumn of 1143 when disaster struck. The court was at Acre and on the 7th November the Queen Melisande decided to go for a picnic. As the royal party rode out into the country, a hare was flushed and the king galloped off in pursuit of it. Suddenly his horse stumbled and Fulk was thrown off and his heavy saddle struck him on the head. They carried him back unconscious and with ghastly head wounds to Acre. There, three days later, he died. Queen Melisande's vocal grief, much as it moved all the court, did not distract her from taking over the kingdom. Of the children that she had borne to Fulk, 
Two sons survived, Baldwin, who was aged 13, and Amalric, aged 7. Fulk had possessed the throne as her husband, and her rights as heiress were fully recognised. But the idea of a sole queen, regnant, was unthought of by the barons. She therefore appointed her son Baldwin as her colleague, and herself assumed the government. Her action was regarded as perfectly constitutional, and was endorsed by the Council of the Realm, when she and Baldwin were crowned together by the patriarch William on Christmas Day. Melisande was a capable woman who in happier times might have reigned with success. She took as her adviser her first cousin, the constable Manasses of Hierge, son of a Walloon lord, who had married Baldwin II's sister, Hodierna of Rethel. Manasses had come out as a young man to his uncle's court, where his abilities and his royal connections secured his steady advancement. When Balian the Old of Ibelin died, soon after King Fulk's death, Manasses married his widow, Helvis, heiress of Ramla. In time, the barons came to resent Manasses's power, for the queen and he inclined towards autocracy, but for the moment there was no opposition to the queen. However, her accession brought one serious disadvantage. Under King Fulk, the king of Jerusalem's position as overlord of all of the crusading states had been growing theoretical rather than practical, and it was unlikely that the princes of the north would pay greater attention to the rule of a woman and a child. When quarrels broke out between the Prince of Antioch and the Count of Edessa, a strong king of Jerusalem such as Baldwin II would have marched north and forcibly composed the differences. Neither a queen nor a boy king could do so, and no one else had the overriding authority. Meanwhile, no one was watching the rule of Queen Melisande more closely than the Crusaders' greatest opponent, Imad al-Din Zengi. Zengi had united the Emirates of Mosul and Aleppo in 1128 and had declared himself Islam's champion against the Crusaders. But he hadn't been able to launch any major offensives against them, mainly because of constant warfare with other Islamic rivals, especially the Emir of Damascus. Now, seeing Queen Melisande ruling the Kingdom of Jerusalem, he thought this would be an ideal opportunity to test the Crusaders, not by attacking her, but by attacking the weakest of the Crusader states, the county of Edessa. Therefore, in November 1144, he and his main army appeared before the walls of Edessa. The siege of Edessa lasted for four weeks. The Count of Edessa, Jocelyn, had taken with him all his leading soldiers on an expedition away from the city. Therefore, the defence was entrusted to the Latin Archbishop Hugh II. The Armenian Bishop John and the Jacobite Bishop Basil loyally supported him. Any hope that Zengi might have had of seducing the native Christians from their Frankish allegiance was disappointing. Basil the Jacobite suggested asking for a truce, but public opinion was against him. Nevertheless, the defenders, well though they fought, were few in numbers. Jocelyn himself retired to Turbacel. The historian William of Tyre cruelly criticises him for slowness and cowardice in refusing to go to his capital's rescue, but his army was simply not strong enough to risk a battle with Zengiz. He had confidence that the great fortification
ramifications of Odessa could hold out for some time. At Turbacel, he could interrupt any reinforcements that Zengi might summon from Aleppo, and he counted on help from his Frankish neighbours. He had sent at once to Antioch and to Jerusalem. At Jerusalem, Queen Melisande held a council of war and was authorised to gather an army which she dispatched under Manasses, the constable, Philip of Nablus and Elenund of Burez. But at Antioch, Raymond would do nothing. All Jocelyn's appeals to him as his overlord were in vain. Without his help, Jocelyn dared not attack Zengi. He waited at Turbacel for the arrival of the Queen's army. It came too late. Zengi's army was swelled by Kurds and Turkomans from the upper Tigris, and he had good siege engines. The clerics and merchants who formed the bulk of the garrison were inexpert in warfare. Their counterattacks and counterminings were unsuccessful. Archbishop Hugh was thought to be holding back the treasure that he had amassed, badly though it was needed for the defence. On Christmas Eve, a wall collapsed near the Gate of the Hours, and the Muslims poured in through the breach. The inhabitants fled in panic to the citadel to find the gates closed against them by order of the Archbishop, who himself stayed outside in a vain attempt to restore order. Thousands were trampled to death in the confusion, and Zengi's troops, hard on their heels, slew thousands more, including the bishop. At last, Zengi himself rode up and ordered the massacre to cease. The native Christians were spared, but all the Franks were rounded up and done to death and their women sold into slavery. Two days later, a Jacobite priest, Basuma, who had taken over command of the citadel, surrendered to Zengi. Zengi treated the conquered city kindly once the Franks were removed. He appointed as governor Kuchuk Ali of Abil, but the native Christians, Armenians, Jacobites and even Greeks were allowed a certain measure of autonomy. Though the Latin churches were destroyed, theirs were untouched and they were encouraged to bring their co-religionists in to repeople the city. In particular, the Syrian bishop Basil enjoyed the favour of the conquerors because of his proud reply when they questioned if he was trustworthy, that his loyalty to the Franks showed how capable he was of loyalty. The Armenians, among whom the dynasty of Courtenay had always been popular, took less willingly to the new regime. The news of the fall of Edessa reverberated throughout the world. To the Muslims, it brought new hope. A Christian state that had intruded into their midst had been destroyed, and the Franks restricted to the lands by the Mediterranean. The roads from Mosul to Aleppo now were cleared of the enemy, and there was no longer a Christian wedge driven between the Turks of Iran and the Turks of Anatolia. Zengi had well earned his royal title. To the Franks, it brought despondency and alarm, and to the Christians of Western Europe, it came as a terrible shock. For the first time, they realised that things were not well in the East. A movement was set on foot to preach a new crusade. Indeed, a crusade was needed, for the Frankish princes of the East, despite their peril, still could not bring themselves to cooperate. Jocelyn attempted to rebuild his principality in the lands that he held west of the Euphrates, with Turbacel as his capital. But though it was clear that Zengi would soon attack him, he could not forgive Raymond for having refused him help. He openly broke with him and rejected his authority. Raymond was equally averse to a reconciliation, 
But he was alive to the danger of isolation. In 1145, after defeating a Turkoman raid, he decided to travel to Constantinople to ask for help from the Byzantine emperor. When he arrived, the Byzantine emperor Manuel would not receive him. It was only after he had knelt in humble contrition at the tomb of the emperor John that he was allowed an audience. Manuel then treated him graciously, loading him with gifts and promising him a money subsidy, but he would not promise him immediate military aid, for the Byzantines had a Turkish war on their hands. There was talk of an expedition in the future, and the visit, humiliating though it was to Raymond's pride and unpopular among his barons, had one useful result. It was noticed by Zengi, who therefore decided to postpone a further attack on the northern Franks and turn his attention once more to Damascus, where his Islamic rival was still one of his main enemies. Therefore, in May 1146, Zengi moved to Aleppo to prepare for his attack on Damascus. But on his way to Damascus, he met a petty Arab prince who refused to recognize him as overlord. While he was besieging this prince's town on the night of 14th of September 1146, he quarreled with a eunuch of Frankish origin whom he caught drinking wine from his own glass. The eunuch, furious at the rebuke, waited until Zengi slept and then murdered him. Zengi's sudden disappearance was welcome news to all his enemies, both Christian and Muslim. Indeed, his main Muslim rival, the Emir Unur of Damascus, quickly seized much of Zengi's territory. This prompted the barons of the Kingdom of Jerusalem to propose an attack against Unur of Damascus as a way of avenging the loss of Edessa. Queen Melisande didn't agree with this, but she couldn't stop the barons. Therefore, in May 1147, the Frankish army, with Queen Melisande's youngest son Baldwin at its head, crossed the Jordan and marched against Damascus. But it was not the triumphal progress that the soldiers had anticipated. Onur of Damascus had had full warning. His light Turkoman troops combined with the Arabs of the district to harass the Crusaders as they toiled up the Yarmouk Valley towards Dera. Unur himself had already sent an embassy to Aleppo to ask for help from Zengi's successor Nureddin. It was an appeal that Nureddin was delighted to receive. An alliance was made. Nureddin received Unur's daughter's hand in marriage and promised to come at once to his rescue. He was to be given back Harma but was to respect Damascene independence. At the end of May, the Franks reached Dera, just over halfway between the frontier and Bosra. Meanwhile, Unur had hurried to Salkad, which lay further to the east. Ultan Tash's garrison there asked for a truce, and Unur moved on westward to join with Nureddin, who had come down at full speed from Aleppo. Together they marched on Bosra, which was surrendered to them by Altuntash's wife. News of the surrender reached the Franks on the evening when, weary and short of water, they arrived within sight of Bosra. They were in no state to attack the Muslims. There was nothing to be done but retreat. The return journey was more arduous than the advance. Food ran short, 
Many of the wells have been destroyed. The enemy hung on their rear and killed the stragglers. Queen Melisande's young son, Baldwin, showed great heroism, refusing a suggestion that he should leave the main army and hurry on to safety with a picked bodyguard. Thanks to his example, discipline remained high. The barons at last decided to make their peace with Unur, who accepted this, and the Franks were allowed to retreat in peace. The crusader attack on Damascus had been costly and pointless. It had also established an alliance between Unur of Damascus and Zengi's successor, his son Nureddin, in Aleppo. Islam was ready to attack the crusaders again. More than ever, the crusaders needed help from Europe. There must be another crusade. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd be hugely grateful if you left any ratings on this podcast. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear how the Second Crusade began.